0: When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine.
1: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant
2: and health related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org and live your Catholic faith. In your healthcare with CMF Curo.
1: Today our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Emily Crash, a young family medicine physician in Fort Wayne, Indiana, who's going to reveal the mysteries of how a medical student can transform from her pupa and larva into the chrysalis (laughs) and become a butterfly of a trained family medicine physician ready to care for patients. Andrew, how is this topic important for our listeners?
2: I think it's really important. I think uh, people will be interested to kind of Pull the curtain back, see what it's like. Uh, just as evidenced by how many TV shows, sitcoms are there about residency training? I mean, like, how many, Andrew? I don't know, an awful lot. <laughs> I didn't look it up, but several I yes. can think of off the top of my head. And it's because people love this stuff.
1: Have you ever watched any of them?
2: I have. Really? I, have. I, I couldn't. And uh, it's mostly the one the ones that are enjoyable. It's when it's funny. And I think, you know, people would be interested what it's like in real life. Some of it's true, but it's not exactly like what you see on TV. It's
1: not funny every day, is it? It's not. No, it's.
2: You, I've been waiting to do this for my whole life. This is what I was built for. Here I am. I finally get to go. Ooh. By the way, don't kill anyone. <laughs> and uh, in other episodes, as we've talked, don't tick anybody off, you know. I always think so much of it you're working intimately on a team with your coworkers and they're a lot like sleep deprived kind of pregnant wives except they don't love you and and they made no promise to do so and so you're constantly trying to tiptoe around people who are sleep deprived and you get a day off on the weekend a lot of people they'll go work someplace else because you finally got all these loans staring you down you can finally go make some money and uh it's just stressful it's really stressful so i think people people will enjoy hearing about what it's like
1: so andrew you grew up as the oldest child of two parents who just happen to be family physicians both of them some children of physicians say that they would never want to be a doctor like their parents yet you and some of your siblings do want to be what went right in your family
2: you know i I think there's a lot of things, tell you the truth, and obviously hats off to mom and dad for for doing a good job with us, I think. Hopefully, I can do a good job with my kids. But really, the thing that was very evident is that there's goods and bads about any work you get into, and the work as a physician lends itself to, to many uniquely rewarding things where to some extent all jobs you get to help people but you know in working as a physician you do get to do that on a a very intimate basis and i know the days that i have really good days it's usually when you get to help somebody and they're appreciative Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of work even though you're helping people you don't get that um gives you a chance to excel and uh especially if you want to have a family it gives you a great opportunity to provide a great living for your family so it's a There's a lot of real blessings, but not to overlook the challenges, but you just you take them in stride and you're not blinded thinking that there's
1: the grass is greener. I mean, everybody's got joys and challenges. Amen to that. And so, Andrew, you said family medicine. Did you know you wanted to be a family physician from day one of, you know, rational thinking or uh, did you ever consider other specialties?
2: I knew I wasn't interested in subspecialties. Oh. All these guys. I got a guy I graduated high school with, and he's still in residency. He's <laughs> going to turn 40 soon, I think. And uh, he's like some super special PhD, MD, interventional radiology dude oh I can't even imagine student. yeah I mean I I'm sure there's people who like that I knew I was like I just want to get out as soon as possible ah. care for people already start a family of my own I was really tempted to go for general surgery because I think the day-to-day work was even a little bit more fun uh-huh. Uh but some of those surgeries, I stand in there, and my back would hurt at the end of the day. <laughs> and uh, somebody needs an appy. A lot of times, you're getting up at 2 a.m. to go in. And mm-hmm. I, when when I was picking this, I already had one kid and one on the way. And talking to my wife, we said, I, it'd be nice to not have the call burden. So here I am in family medicine, and uh, I love that. I really do.
1: Oh Well, that's great. So um, over the past five years, the number of family medicine positions has increased about 50%. So now there's almost 5,000 new positions a year. That's 14%, one-seventh of all available post-medical school residency training positions spread among 741 programs. So what do you think about this increase and the fact that now one-third of new residents in family medicine are U.S.-trained MDs, One-third are U.S.-trained DOs, and one-third are international graduates.
2: Yeah, I think everybody talks about the doctor shortage, and uh, really that hits primary care the hardest. We've got more specialists than we need. A lot of times specialists have to move to certain big cities to get enough work. Mm. We don't have enough primary care. And uh, really, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a hard sell getting a lot of people to go into family medicine because to talk to the insurance companies and to talk to the government, our job is to make people healthy. And that's a big burden because a lot of people don't want to be healthy. And they don't want to be healthy in the way that the government wants them to. And so that, that leads to a lot of paperwork, a lot of stress, a lot of burnout. My, my antidote is to try and care for the patient in the way they want, uh, in the way that I can. And uh, that leads to not coercing people to do things. And uh, it's a lot happier way to practice medicine. And then if somebody you know doesn't want to take the COVID shot and the feds want you to, and you've got to check the box or not check the box, or the same thing for a colonoscopy or anything, it'll eat you alive. So I I can understand why it's a hard sell, but that's also where the need is. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for people who who want to practice family medicine. You can do it.
1: So it's a good thing that the residency spots are increasing.
2: Well, and I, I think family docs are the cheapest to train too. They're the shortest. So medical education's always been funded in part by Medicare. Right. And that's dried up. So the cheapest doctors to make are family doctors.
1: Right, because it's three years after that's medical right medical school. And uh, what else is three years? Internal me- general internal medicine and general pediatrics.
2: That's about it. Everything else, you get into these longer programs, and it's just, uh, and we don't, we truly, we probably don't need more brain surgeons. We need more family docs.
1: Amen. Well, before we get to our stunning interview today, we have our medical trivia question. In the category is Common Reasons to See a Primary Care Physician. I
2: liked this one. I didn't get it right. I didn't Oh my. I, I was well, I don't want to spoil it. Okay,
1: but. please don't. <laughs> I appreciate that. Your your prefrontal cortex is operating at high level today. Can, okay. Based on a study by Finley and others called What Are the Most Common Conditions in Primary Care? Systematic Review that was published in the Canadian Family Physician four years ago. Which of the following was the most common patient reported symptom for which they sought a family physician's care was it a i have a rash b my throat is sore c i got this cough d my back hurts or e my abdomen hurts or they'll probably say my belly hurts or my stomach hurts We'll be back with the answer at the end of the show, but before that, we'll have Emily Crash on the vicissitudes and the fascinating aspects of what the heck residency training does to give us the young physicians we need here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with our interview of Dr. Emily Crash, a Doctor of Osteopathy, a native of Fort Wayne, Indiana, where we record, Doctor Doctor. She got a bachelor's degree in cellular molecular biology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. She got her DO degree at Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine in Indianapolis, and she's a graduate of a 2021 uh, in 2021 of a Midwestern Family Practice Residency Program, and she's incredibly active and. Uh, Greatly desired as a member of the Catholic Medical Association since early in medical school. Emily, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks So Emily, how would you simply explain the difference between medical school training and residency training?
0: There are definitely yeah, a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. So uh, in medical school, it's basically first learning how to take a history, learning physical exam skills, perfecting those skills, eventually uh, later in end of fourth year Uh, Get a little taste of what residency is like by doing some audition rotations and sub internships,
1: but okay Let's define those. Yeah, people probably don't know what is an audition rotation? What is a sub internship? So
0: an audition rotation would be uh, basically looking out for programs that you're interested in going to for residency and working with them for at least two to four weeks and uh, Getting to know the program but also uh, showing that you know what you're doing and that they should take you on as a resident
1: sub internship
0: a similar uh, type of uh, rotation where you're basically working under an intern working with a medical team in the hospital and uh, also basically acting more as a resident a little bit more advanced than what you'd be doing during a normal rotation as a med
1: student so trying to replicate what you will need to do once you graduate from yes. medical school so yeah. kind of you know going up that ramp of responsibility mm-hmm. um now because of covid a lot of interviews for medical students who go into residency they all went online and, and in fact, I heard some programs are not even allowing audition rotations. What do you know about this?
0: Well, I think it's a mistake. I think that the online, the Zoom interview approach is not good because, I mean, I wouldn't have known where I wanted to go if I hadn't actually seen with my own eyes the different programs. And uh, you get to know the people there. Uh, Family medicine is all about relationships and it's basically a personality contest too. So mm-hmm. you're just really... Uh, wanting to know who you're going to be working with since you spend so much more time working with the residents and faculty members than a lot of times you end up seeing your own family. So, you want to be with supportive people who aren't going to leave you in the dark when you're uh, working at night as an intern and your upper level, upper level resident is you know, sleeping or unavailable. You don't want to be in that situation. So.
2: How how did you choose family medicine as a specialty? Everybody's usually got kind of a discernment process. What was (laughs) yours?
0: Yeah, well, I knew I wasn't cut out to be a surgeon.
2: so Uh, uh, i like you've been holding that one in your pocket emily
0: (laughs) (laughs) but i actually i mean i had a lot of great mentors such as yourself andrew and just other other doctors that i really looked up to that i thought i want to be like them when i grow up and just really saw how i could incorporate my catholic faith into the practice of medicine some of the specialties you have to think oh what ethical issues do they have to deal with but i mean every specialty does but i thought wow at least i could really see myself living out my faith through this specialty
2: yeah that's really good family medicine and that's kind words you have for me too family, family medicine is a uh, is really unique with with some of the aspects of it tell us about you know and may, maybe you're familiar with the idea of the family medicine instead of just the gp a lot of people talk about the old gp or family practice or family because practice. it's still the american
1: academy of family well, physicians, I guess, AAFP, not family practice.
2: T- tell us about that transition. What's different now than maybe you know 50 years ago, uh, Marcus Welby? Was he a family doc? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what's the difference?
0: Yeah, so I think it's all people think about the, the general, the same thing, the idea of a primary care specialist. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when the term general practitioner went to the wayside, but... I know. At least in 2003, it was when the family practitioner name oh. went um, was uh, no longer in use because the American Academy of Family Physicians actually voted to change the oh, name to okay. family medicine, and then uh, also gotcha. then the uh, for us to be called family physicians. She's done
2: her homework. I like yes, it. Yes, I
0: looked that up ahead of time.
2: <laughs> I like it. Well, and and I think probably some of that too is the training. So residency is a three year training. Tell us about that. How many, I guess, how many hours would you say? What's your usual week look like?
0: It kind of depends because every week is, every month is different. Every week is different. So explaining our schedule to someone who doesn't know anything about residency <laughs> can be confusing.
2: So <laughs> I thought you, I thought you had Tuesday afternoons off. Yeah,
0: exactly. So and. basically, you can't really plan ahead for anything. So, uh, but a lot, of, you know, it would depend. Some months would be very involved months in the hospital. Some would be more outpatient, a little bit easier going, but we would work at least five to six days a week, usually never less than that. Uh, even for the lighter months that were more outpatient rotations, we would still sometimes have to work on the weekend and work six days a week just because of having our call schedule where basically the um, intern and then a second or third year resident would be working a night shift in the hospital to relieve our day teams when they were finished for the day. So. So how many
1: hours were you allowed to work in a row? How many hours were you allowed to work a week or average per week?
0: Yeah, so the hourly limit is, uh, the hour limit is 80 hours per week, and that's a uh, national standard. So the programs want us to follow that. My program was good about making sure we followed that. There were only a handful of weeks that I went a little bit above that, and if it averages out to 80, that's that's usually considered okay but most of the time i didn't quite go to that that was usually more on my inpatient heavy months working on our medicine service
1: so were there other months where it was under 80
0: yes definitely most i would say most most months were, were under eighty. so you
1: said each month is different so what would be some of the different things a family physician training to be a family physician would do each of those months
0: yeah so basically we would have um some months just be all on the inpatient medicine service, so admitting patients rounding on the patients uh, day to day and um, and there would be a day team and a night team and then we would also ha- we also had an obstetric service uh, in my program, so there would be a group of residents who would deliver babies during the day and go to a, an obstetric clinic tw- or two or three days a week to manage the patients in an outpatient clinic and then then a night team would come in and relieve them. And then we'd also have other, basically, uh, specialty rotations. We would go, we would do dermatology, we would do ear, nose, and throat. Uh, We did, I did several surgery rotations and uh, many other specialty rotations, but we would also have um, clinic interspersed throughout
1: the. So how did those specialty rotations help you to be better in the exam room with your patients?
0: So a lot of that is to know uh, when to refer patients for us mm-hmm. because we and what we can treat. So I, a lot of times would ask the whoever I was working with, whether it be um, a general surgeon or um, an ENT doctor, and ask them, you know, oh, what what do you think is appropriate for me to take care of on my own? What when do you think for sure I should refer to you? And um, just ask you know questions about okay, I've tried this with a certain patient, and ask for their advice on what okay. I could have done differently.
2: That's really good. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I think probably a lot of specialty training after you get out of the intern year is very different than family medicine because throughout the whole time you're exposed to such a wide
1: mm-hmm. variety.
2: You might go from a surgical one to pathology to delivering babies and it's kind of the joys joys of family medicine. When, when you have uh, medical students that you give advice to, what are some of the pearls of wisdom that you might give to them if they're trying to pick a residency?
0: Yeah, I would say they need to definitely uh, respect the program director and feel that he or she would support them if any ethical issues were to arise or if any um, uh, uncomfortable circumstances were to arise. So
1: here's a question I get often from medical students. Should I tell the people I'm interviewing with that there are some things I will not participate in? What would you tell them?
0: I would tell them that they should feel comfortable doing that. And I didn't have any problem when I was interviewing. I always usually waited till the very end of the (laughs) the interview (laughs) in case things were to get awkward. But I would always wait till the end and usually just with the program director because that's the voice uh, that matters the most in the end. And they call the final shots for everything. So, I would always ask them if they had ever had any residents who didn't prescribe contraception or participate in things like tubal ligations or abortions. And uh, at least most of the interviews I did were in Indiana. And they, all, almost every program that, that I went to, uh, they said, oh, yeah, well, we've had residents like you before. <laughs> and then I went to a couple other, other uh, places out of state. But most of the places said, yeah, we'd be comfortable with you. Or a few said we hadn't ever, ever had a, had a resident like you, but we would we'd be willing to. Let you come
2: (laughs) (laughs) Probably because they really liked you (laughs)
1: Exactly And and that's I think uh, Emotional intelligence there First to get them A a positive image of you To make it hard for them To say no
0: yeah, and I think too, it's a little, it's different in family medicine, definitely than ob I don't think that's the same experience for them. I think family right. doctors tend to be more charitable, and for people who Zang. practice differently.
2: What Chris isn't even here to right. defend the poor OBs. I'm not sure he would defend them. But, <laughs> I don't think he uh, like. <laughs> no, Family that. doctors are. Uh, yeah, that is one of the things that that we try to be. Right.
1: Well, that's why I was initially interested in family medicine, and I realized it later. It's because I liked family doctors. They were people that I'd want to hang out with
2: yeah that is that is a very good thing you know wh- one of the the questions people get a lot is just you you get we t- kind of talked in the intro about how intense residency training can be and sometimes stressful what was the hardest part of adjusting to residency training from med school Did you find it hard to adjust or was it easier in some ways?
0: I think it was definitely a tough transition just because of the significantly longer work hours. And then also just everything mattered so much more. So just realizing, oh, wow, I could unintentionally harm a patient because I'm actually the one making decisions now and that you don't want to be. The resident who appear you know who appears foolish because you didn't know the right thing to do and you think well should i be asking all these questions or are they gonna think i don't know anything and
2: right so that yeah there's a lot more it would tom mentioned emotional intelligence a, a lot more of your grade is based on you know just getting along on mm-hmm. the team and being an effective mm-hmm. member uh in residency there's you have the board exams but you don't have regular tests like in med school too right
0: Right. We did though have a yearly in training exam, so mm-hmm. actually right around October. Yep. So now everyone's studying well, in family medicine right now. So
1: ours was always in April in dermatology.
2: Oh nice.
1: Every year, yes.
2: Yeah, that's uh man, I'm I'm glad that I'm not doing any more of those things. So what was the best part
1: of being a resident as compared to a medical student?
0: I think definitely I felt more of a sense of purpose in residency, uh, just yes. because I was actually after I mean overcoming some of the initial fear, which I don't think ever truly goes away of making decisions, because you think you know think back, oh wow, I should have done that with a patient, or I I could have done this, and you, as as I think as I grew up through residency, that I th- and became you know more <laughs> more confident than that. Um, that really definitely gives you a greater sense of purpose rather than medical school where it kind of just seems like, okay, I'm paying to do this and yeah. paying to be here for long hours. And
2: T- Tell us a little bit about how you, you had mentioned each month there's maybe a different rotation. Year to year, how, how did residency change as far as responsibilities and things like that?
0: Yeah, so basically the first year intern year, kind of the most intense year, uh, you're basically the worker bee of the program so
1: drone. you
0: uh you're the one going to admit the patients and first one to see and even especially in the beginning though you're usually heavily supervised but that's why the joke of everyone saying don't go to the hospital during ju- the month of july because it's all the new interns that are admitting the patients and yeah. they don't know what they're doing so uh so you start off admitting the patients and then Usually, they uh, the turn works with a second or third year resident, and they uh, will talk about the patient, and then talk about what they want to do for the plan, what orders they want to uh, to put in the electronic medical records, and uh, kind of just discuss what what to do. And then the upper level resident, the second or third year, advises them, teaches them, and then of course later they'll discuss everything with the attending. But
2: did you feel like? It sounds like the majority of experience is concentrated really in that first year getting you competent. Did you feel like that was the case for you or do you you pick up on different things the further you get into training?
0: Yeah I mean I think definitely the most intense learning yeah does happen during the first year at least at, at our program I think it and not every program does it this way, but I kind of appreciated being almost yeah thrown into the fire because mm-hmm. I think I, I learned that learn the best that way. I think a lot of people in medicine learn learn that way. Just you learn by doing and I think I learned a lot more during the first year than I did during my third and fourth year medical school rotations because Oh sure. Yeah, just because I was the one having to make the decisions and and trying to, you know, do a good job so that the patients had good outcomes.
2: Did did you feel like the work you were doing translated to to work you're doing after graduation?
0: I think definitely uh even though now i'm retired from hospital medicine and retired from obstetrics (laughs) i do do appreciate my education in those areas and i think that's definitely made me a better outpatient doctor which i prefer the outpatient setting anyways so i feel like now i have more um i guess confidence in knowing okay should i send this patient to the er
2: right and there's some outpatient training in residency too right tell us about that
0: yeah, so basically we have uh, our own continuity clinic. So every resident has their own panel of patients and they start us off really small. So we have only see three or four patients a day and that's if all your patients show up to their appointments. So it could be one or it could be none some days. And then you basically uh, see the patient and then uh, report back to uh, one of our uh, staff doctors in our clinic. So basically it'll be all huddled in a room together and then we'd have to go to, to the room where all they're waiting for us, and talk about our patient experience or what we uh, what we are treating the patient for, and basically our plan of what we want to do for their care, and then they would tell us whether you know if they thought we should do something differently and teach us about um, the patient. And
1: did you have to get approval for every single patient you saw in residency before you could finish the visit? In other words, did you have to sign it out with a senior physician?
0: Well, for sure during the first year. So mm-hmm. every single patient for the first six months not only had to be staffed with a supervising doctor, but they also had to come talk with the patient as well. Wow. And then the second six months, or the uh, later in intern year, then I had to still staff every patient, but they didn't still have to go talk mm-hmm. with the patient. But they, if the patient had Medicare, then they still were required to go talk with the patient as well. And then during second and third year as long as you had, uh, had we applied for our medical full medical license
1: oh true yeah, cuz so. you can't get your license until you have a year post medical school under your belt
0: right yeah so basically everyone who had finally gone through all the paperwork and gotten their official uh medical license, then we didn't have to staff any patient unless they had Medicare. So some of the residents would never staff anything. I didn't feel that confident. So if there was something that I had not experienced before, I would always go and talk with the staff doctor about what, what my thoughts were about the patient and wanted you know genuine advice and learning from uh,
2: them. How often would the staff doctors maybe shoot you down or redirect? Is that something that was a common way of learning or was it more personality. I know there's, there's a lot of things in medicine that there's a lot of ways to do the same thing.
0: Yeah, I definitely encountered situations where I thought, oh, yeah, I really wouldn't do it that way. Some of them were a little bit more, I think, they just didn't care as not not that they didn't care, I guess, but they, they more just thought, oh, well, if you want to do that, that's fine. I would do it this way. And then others would say, oh, no, you're wrong. You should do it this way. And so there's some of that during residency that sometimes you just have to to do what they tell you but and think oh wow i'm not going to do it this way when i'm out in practice of course none of that was for any you know if there were an ethical issue involved i of course wouldn't wouldn't i guess acquiesce to their demands but I,
1: i guess one question before we go to our break and that is when we were prepping this you talked about residents having trigger words
0: yes and uh the funniest instance of of yeah trigger words i think that that i encountered was that a lot of the residents in my program well maybe not a lot probably probably several of the girls they did not like the word abstinence it was a dirty word to them they they hate it they think it's the worst thing ever and the reason why is because apparently in the public schools in our um county they still uh receive education about abstinence which is kind of uncommon in a lot of parts of the country yes but their reason for getting upset is they actually think that the reason why the gonorrhea rates in our county were higher than most other parts of the state were because the school children were taught abstinence. and So, think- therefore,
1: you can get gonorrhea by not touching somebody else. Explain exactly. that one to me. Right. And so- <laughs> my goodness.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so when uh, my brother... And d- during, um, I think I was the second year resident, he had just started, he didn't know that was a trigger word. So yikes! yeah, so he um, ended up <laughs> saying, well, maybe we should teach our patients about abstinence when one of the other residents said, oh, does anyone have ideas for these safe sex um, packages we're gonna hand out to patients? And and he, um, he said, well, why don't we teach them about abstinence? And that just, all hell broke <laughs> loose after cow. that. For,
1: Poor Patrick. For, yeah. <laughs> noble thing that he was doing. Well, we're going to take a break here and then talk about some more fascinating stories from uh, Emily's residency here on Dr. Doctor. And we are back
2: on Dr. Doctor today talking to Dr. Emily Crash about residency, family medicine residency in particular. Um, Emily, you've got some stories that you you were going to share with us really about the radical loyalty to the culture of death that blinds some doctors. And uh, it's it's kind of sad, but it's their they're instructive stories. So maybe you could share one or two with us.
0: Sure, yeah. The first uh, kind of month that I was seeing patients on my own in the clinic kind of was a little eye-opening to, you know, different perspectives that I was kind of expecting but not, you know, not – or sometimes surprised that people would have this view, you know, in terms, especially in terms of of contraception, and kind of thought, okay, well, it makes sense to me if the person is having problems or major side effects, then you just stop whatever medicine the patient has, especially um, if it's really. Affecting their daily life And so I had a patient uh, Pretty early on That uh, had just Had a um, A Nexplanon Inserted into arm Which is basically um, A form of birth control That um, A usually family doctor Or OBGYN Will insert into the patient And then it Last for about three years or so and before they have to remove it and uh this patient was complaining that she had had several months of daily spotting and bleeding and she knew it was because of the next because she didn't have daily spotting and bleeding
2: for, <laughs> for, it's awfully coincidental yes, yes
0: before that and so i mean i talked with her and said you know i really agree with you i think that's the cause you know if you want it removed i'd be happy to do that for you and i think that's the best Solution. Oh, so that's something you did in clinic. Or, well, I first talked with her about about removing it, but then um, I talked with, or I had to go staff with my um, staff doctor, who said, "Oh, well, you know, after getting an explant on, a patient can really bleed for up to six months, and that's pretty normal." <laughs> and and I just thought, "Wow, was how this a
1: woman staff member? No, it was a man." <laughs> and he said, what if you bled for six months? <laughs> exactly. Yikes. He, I yeah. couldn't believe
0: that anyone would have. Bleeding and normal for six months and normal in the same sentence.
2: Yes, but that is why. But yes,
0: but he actually said that, and so I said, well, actually, the patient really wants it removed, and you know, he said, well, but these cost over a thousand dollars to you know implant. You should really discourage her from getting it removed, and instead, you should prescribe her oral contraceptive pills to Uh, treat the side effect and I thought oh Uh, so uh, prescribed for another form of birth control to treat the (laughs) to treat the original birth control and so as it turns out, the patient didn't want to be on a second form of, of birth not. control. And so she then scheduled uh, another visit to get her next one on removed. And then so. you taught her wow. natural
1: family planning, right?
0: I actually didn't see her for the follow-up because she wasn't one of my patients. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, what, she was lost to follow-up. Would have been me, a nice <laughs> bow
1: on the story, but but not. Yes. But then you said that you received an email in your second year of residency related to this same drug
0: yeah so we actually had uh quite a few uh patients in our clinic who were very dissatisfied with their next planons as it turns out not surprising to my brother and i but we um since we expected uh people to have these side effects and don't prescribe them not just because of the side effects of course but it's a it's a big a big way i think that at least i can approach the topic with people who don't understand why i don't prescribe contraception i kind of first go from a medical perspective why and then delve into the ethics with them. Yeah. But uh, but the clinic director had emailed everyone that apparently all these people or all these women don't like their next bonds. They want them removed. And so because it costs so much money the program trying to think well we're losing all this money basically by buying these nexplanons and then the patients are dissatisfied because the residents weren't doing an adequate job of basically informing the patients oh, about the side effects of them
2: yeah there's there's a big push in residency uh a, at least that was my experience to get a certain number of procedures right you know you've got to get your Quota, your threshold, what have you. And so I, I can appreciate how, yeah, maybe informed consent can take a back seat.
0: Yeah, a lot of the residents, they definitely get excited when there's, you know, something, oh, there's something for me to do. And it's, they, yeah, yeah they get excited about inserting plans apparently. and But the clinic director said, well, they have to go through a more rigorous uh, authorization process, basically, or approval process for, um, in order for them to. How much did the
1: next Planon insertions decrease after they started that. any idea?
0: I mean, I don't know exact numbers, but they definitely, I think decreased pretty significantly because I didn't at least hear of more of my mm-hmm. fellow residents um, having as many uh, patient visits with that being the the reason for visit. So
2: yeah, it's kind of hard, I think, for a lot of folks outside of medicine to appreciate, but the the kind of I'm not going to say standard of care because it's not all that formal. But really the expectation and the goal is if someone is 13 years or older, they need to be on birth control unless they want to have a baby right now. And that's the expectation that's put on the doctors, on residents. And uh, when that's not the way you see the world, it probably makes for some struggles trying to to explain that to people.
0: Right. Definitely there's a, a lack of education, lack of knowledge about other better treatments but uh you know significant lack of education about natural family planning even especially even in the in the church and
2: how, how much education did you get in medical school or residency about natural family planning
0: i got a little bit more than most i think because i went to a catholic medical school uh, marion university so we did have uh, some lectures in natural family planning and fertility awareness based methods um, but most of what i learned i had to seek out myself so i picked certain rotations or I, you know, got involved with, of course, the Catholic Medical Association, also uh, Dr. Dwayne's organization, FACTS, so that I could learn more about.
2: That makes sense. I I remember looking at that in my med, med school gynecology textbook, you know, hundreds of pages, two paragraphs. On uh, the rhythm method, and one paragraph of that too was on other types of natural family planning, and so it's uh yeah it's a it's a blind spot in traditional medical education.
1: Yeah. Well, you said among your fellow residents that they thought
0: right. They uh, most of them I don't think had even heard of the rhythm method, so most of them just had really no idea of what natural family planning actually was. So they just thought they I mean they kind of put together natural they just thought it was someone just living their life as they saw fit and not (laughs) you
1: know and babies come when they may exactly (laughs) yeah just no
0: yeah nothing involving monitoring of fertility signs it was it was just oh that person is just living their life naturally
2: (laughs) it is a miracle but it's not magic
1: (laughs) (laughs) so a second story uh dealt with transgender um patient requests
0: yeah. So actually, when I was uh, interviewing for programs, it didn't really come up much about uh, any program saying, oh, well, we have you know, opportunities to train in transgender care. I'm sure there were probably some, but not the programs that I was looking at. So and definitely not at my program. So I did not ever receive any um, lectures in our didactic sessions about uh, transgender medicine. And none of my directors or anyone really affiliated with the program knows anything about it nor do they really want to be involved in it uh, is from what i've gathered but we did have patients that were wanting to transition and so some of the residents in my program were treating them in that way usually the second or third years and i'm not sure exactly how many uh, patients they were seeing but i would hear them talk about their patient encounters and how they were starting to help uh, assist these um Patients in transitioning And
1: And they staffed these all out right
0: No they didn't because they knew That our staff doctors don't know anything about That and so they were basically I guess Just kind of going off On their own frontier and doing Whatever they saw fit and so I mean I even heard a few residents who really Didn't want to be involved in it they would Have a follow up scheduled For prescribing Testosterone for example to you know A person a woman wanting to become a man and so the patient or the resident would would say oh i don't feel comfortable with this i don't know what to do and they know they can't go to (laughs) to a staff doctor so they would just ask the other resident oh what do you usually do and i thought it was interesting that I, I never got any of those patients put on my schedule, and neither did my brother. And I never told anyone not to put them on my schedule, but oh, I'm wow. assuming that it's probably because they thought, well, she won't prescribe contraception. She's probably also not going She's to. She's probably
2: not down with that. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I don't know if, or just maybe it was just by chance, but.
1: So not only not evidence-based, but not even going to somebody who might even have experience doing it, which in other areas you were unfamiliar with, you would probably always go to staff.
0: Right. Yeah. And so I think that's just a now just a growing problem, especially for family medicine residents, because it's just it's uh, really becoming very popular. And I think a lot of the programs are now starting to have uh, transgender medicine as a big part of, oh, come to our program. You can learn how to train in this. So I think that's, you know, I think that would be way more difficult now for people going into family medicine and other specialties, too, where they're, you know, I don't know if some places will require them to participate or if it's something that they can opt out of.
1: Wow. Yeah, it always starts as opt out, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, it, it seems like so many students are in this tunnel of training that they're just being pushed along by this wave behind them that they can't stop and they have to do everything in front of them if they can do it, not necessarily if they should do it. Do you think there's some truth to that—that that people just stop thinking about morals and ethics and medical training?
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of the residents just say, "Oh, well, this is this is what my, you know, mentor, or this is what my staff doctor is telling me to do. It must be right. They have more experience than me. That's just, I think it's yes, yeah, kind of surface-level rationalization. They say, "Oh, well, this person." They think, oh, well, they'll for sure commit suicide if I don't help them transition, not thinking, oh, wow, I could actually maybe help them target what the actual problem is and
1: get to the root of it. Exactly. And then there was a third story you mentioned that you had a preceptor that wanted you ask the same question of the same patient, the same situation every time.
0: Oh yes, so (laughs) during. uh,
1: It's
2: repetitive.
0: Yes, so during um, our or part of our obstetric service, we uh, go to a federally qualified health center and uh, see all the pregnant ladies there and take care of um, them throughout their pregnancies. And uh, one of our preceptors expected us every single time, including the first visit, to ask the patient oh, and what form of birth control do you want And after? these are
1: pregnant patients.
0: Yes, after mm-hmm. the, after.
2: Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations.
0: No. Yeah. yeah, and what form of birth control yeah. do you want afterwards? Uh,
2: the test was positive this morning.
0: Right. So, and and usually, uh, most, obviously, most of the patients, they're not thinking about that. That's not on their mind. They're focused on the here and now. So, right. Yeah, which what I w- would expect That's them. That's pretty normal. So, so, of course, there's always good ways to get around these kinds of things, so usually, I would be careful with my phrasing and and say, "Oh, have you thought about children or family planning at all after the pregnancy?" Almost i mean nine times out of ten, it was always "No, I'm focused on the here and now basically right, right. so
2: well, one of the things I struggled with a lot in residency was for at least where I trained, you needed to get a written consent thirty days prior to a C section for a lady to get a tubal ligation on Medicaid. And so there was this big rush at about 33 to 36 weeks that you needed to get this thing signed. and the way it was always told to me is just in case they want it later, just get them to sign it. But this is a surgery consent form; it's not just in case, you know. Right? How how did you deal with that, or did you run into that at all?
0: So basically, I mean, I always told them I would not be involved in that. So, but of course, there's always other another resident who's eager to do something like that, or um, and eager to to go ask the patient. So I never had to do it, and of course, I would if someone pressured me, I would have would have refused. But. I actually did um, witness uh, people falsify those documents at times because there are situations where the OB-GYN actually performed the tubal ligation when they hadn't signed the document in the proper amount of time. Yikes. So. Oh, my. And I guess, I mean, I could have gone after these doctors if I wanted to, you know, prove what I witnessed. But I mean, I don't, I didn't really feel like I wanted to devote my time to going after them. And I'm sure it happens a lot more frequently, but...
2: I always thought that was the worst informed consent that I ever saw when mm-hmm. people don't speak English and you're oh. trying to get them to sign a tubal ligation after one or two kids.
0: Right. And know. a lot of the uh, doctors that I worked with, they would complain that, oh, it's because, you know, they have Medicaid and that's why they have these silly rules. And I thought, well, not realizing that they have these rules because people are going to go after them because they yeah,
2: specifically because it's a vulnerable population.
1: Emily, you were presenting once before an institutional review board, so you can tell listeners what that is, and you had what turned out to be a funny experience.
0: Yes, so uh, everyone in family medicine is required to do a research project or a quality improvement project, and basically that's the group that we have to present or our, propose our project to, and they can... Ask you a bunch of questions and determine if they think that the project is worth uh, pursuing, and they will have the ultimate um, approval. And, and that
1: includes an ethical analysis of what you're doing.
0: Yes. So uh, basically, I had just finished or presenting my project, and they said, "Oh, great, that's fine. You know, go do your project." Well, the next person who who uh, went was wanting to do a project that involved implanting Nexplanons right directly after birth in the hospital and she was trying to get a grant for this and um, it was... so this is the
1: next one on that's normally causing six months of bleeding in yeah women, yes. and and not always some some
0: women will just not ever bleed after all so it just really you just really don't know who's gonna okay. have have the problems but they'll have plenty of other side effects too so. <laughs> but so this yeah this resident was really excited for her project but uh the there were several members of the institutional review board who were uh pr- i think probably in their 60s and just uh, they'd been lifelong PhD researchers and they didn't know anything about birth (laughs) control so this is maybe one of their first times I guess being exposed to it and I remember one of the one of those individuals he said Oh well, I read the package insert of the Nexplanon, and I wanted to know: Are you sure this is standard of care? He said, "I, I just can't understand why any woman would want this."
1: <laughs> and the resident's response was:
0: <laughs> "Yeah." She said, "Oh, she was trying to convince him this is perfectly normal, and that which I guess I guess technically it's normal because a lot of women get it, but, uh, but yeah, trying to." I guess convince him that, oh well it's not as bad as the as the package insert <laughs> claims to be. But he said, Yeah, I can't approve this and basically said, If you, you know, can come up with some better reasons, you know, or I guess prove to me that it that this is you know, that it really isn't this bad then <laughs> then you can have the project approved. But the project never got approved so
2: <laughs> Yikes. Man. Now, you know, hearing these things it's it's easy to see the juxtaposition between uh, a Catholic student going through this and the secular medical culture. Were there other Catholic residents around you that could kind of support you or or how did, I guess, how did they view the intersection of religion and the practice of medicine?
0: yeah well definitely i'd say the uh my catholic support in the program was definitely my brother but uh (laughs) but we i estimate i think probably at least a third of the 36 residents in my program came from some sort of catholic background so we had quite we had a spectrum so there probably most of them were non-practicing but uh but a lot of them um you know came from catholic background so you'd kind of you know expect them to be a little bit more um in line with church teaching and their practice but a lot of them even the ones that were actively practicing just kind of see their medical practices separate from their faith life so mm. they wouldn't they would more consider oh well the patient isn't catholic or oh well you know i don't want to feel like i'm forcing my beliefs on someone which it never really it never is it's us you know sharing our faith through the practice of medicine and
2: were, were they supportive at times when you you couldn't follow through on some of these requests
0: do you mean the residents the other it? residents yeah. yeah did they
2: say you know i i got your back or or was it more like you're interpreting this incorrectly
0: i mean i think for the most part the the residents were pretty respectful and i think a lot of them deep down have um you know the same a lot of Values that they themselves don't want to be Involved in like most of I would say most of them Really would never want to involve Themselves at all with an abortion they all Don't they don't necessarily see referral As involvement in it unfortunately Mm -hmm. But I mean I even had um, A good conversation with um, One of my residency classmates who Was raised Catholic but had uh, Fallen away and he said That although he's considers Himself to be pro-choice He he knows what abortion is, and he doesn't want to ever be a part of it. He just basically wants to, you know, turn a blind eye to it. And I think that's a lot of their their opinions, where they they themselves don't want to be involved in things like that, but they'll still claim, you know, they'll still
1: be pro-choice. Well, what's your best advice for? Students going through med school and residency who, who want to follow the admonition in the book of James that, you know, pure religion is this to care for widows and orphans in their distress and keep oneself from being stained by the world.
0: I mean, I think it's definitely important to be involved in supportive organizations like the Catholic Medical Association uh, to meet mentors through the through CMA or to also be involved in the FACTS organization to learn about um, ways that you can defend. Your faith and also defend the way that you practice medicine i think that's essential and i don't think i would have been confident to go to residency had i not been supported by those groups
2: can emily last question can a catholic make it through medical school and residency and survive
0: yes and I think we're all proof of that, but um, I don't know. Amen. You know, times are still changing. So, you know, you never know. I think that the, the next great experiment will be the transgender issue. So
2: yeah, experiment's the key word. Well, thank you for being on the show, Emily. That was really good.
1: Oh, this was a blast. Uh, maybe we'll have something to talk with you about again, Emily. So thank, thank you. thank you.
2: And we are back with the medical trivia question. And, Tom, I'm, I'm going to say I, I have seen all those things, but I got this one wrong.
1: So, yeah, this, this is the heart of what Andrew does every day, and maybe it doesn't parallel what he sees here in Fort Wayne. But based on that study, looking at a bunch of studies, a systematic review, what's the number one patient-reported symptom? Not what the doctor codes later, but what's the number one symptom a patient states on seeing a family physician. And so the multiple choice was actually the top five. I just mixed up the order. Was it a skin rash, a sore throat, a cough, back pain, or abdominal pain and discomfort? Andrew, what did you think it was? I thought it was a rash. You thought it was a rash? Yeah. And, there's, there, and there were other studies I saw where that the coding, the rash was most common, but maybe it was there were multiple things code each visit and that was not the primary thing they brought up. I don't know. I saw that. But this is the only one that looked at patient reported complaints, See, that's not good. coding. Yeah. Because you can find a skin diagnosis on every single patient well, in the world. Well, and
2: see, I'm always jealous of the specialists a little bit because y'all have it so easy. I'm sorry. <laughs> the liver's not my specialty. Talk to your family doctor. But I can't say that. And so whenever I'm stuck <laughs> in there for whatever reason, they're like, oh, and I've got this and this and this. I'm like, I'd l- I want to help you, but
1: we've only got a limited amount of time. So rashes are part of that. Oh, yeah. And, and the thing is, in derm, you'd think it would be easier, but there's so many different things that can be on the skin. Um, That's true. They'll just bring up Things they wouldn't bring up to you, but anyway, the answer is cough. Nineteen percent of people presenting cough was number one. Shortly behind were back pain, abdominal pain. Fourth place was sore throat. Actually, fifth was skin rash at thirteen percent.
2: Yeah, coughs so, can be nagging.
1: So, Andrew, top three takeaways. Well,
2: I would say number one probably was the the sentiment she ended on. Uh, Emily did a great job. Describing training and her experience, but if you're somebody who's interested in medicine and you're a person of faith, especially a Catholic, we'd encourage you to do it. We need more of you because we're getting uh, diluted, but you can do it. Um, Number two, I would say, is you've got to, one of the things that Emily demonstrated so well is she was a whole person before she started medical training. And oh, yes. she demonstrated that she had guns to stick to. <laughs> uh, a lot of people that I interacted with in training were not that way. And if if you don't know what you stand for, you're you're not going to be able to do it. And I think a lot of people suffer in that way. So my advice would be, if you're going to go into healthcare, know know the things that you won't compromise on and why you feel that way. Amen. And then uh, number three, Emily touched on it, and and I feel this way too. Is just the mentorship. You know, throughout training, mentors are so important. And just another little shout-out for for folks listening to the Novus Medicus. If you're interested in healthcare, especially in, in becoming a physician, look up Novus Medicus and get in touch with people who can help, mentor, and support you in that journey.
1: Yep, those are the young members of the Catholic Medical Association. If you are or you know somebody who's in medical training and wants to be a Catholic, n-o-v-u-s-m-e-d-i-c-u-s dot org and you can connect with live people soon. So thank you for listening to us on another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this in all old episodes on our website doctordoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top, and you can search over 290 episodes by topic or guest.
2: And we now offer a video version of our podcast. Just click on the link of the YouTube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org, and we're looking for great ideas for episode topics, or even if you have a question, just click where it says submit a question. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
0: The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org.